Today's show is confronting Nazi art looting in the 21st century. Our opening song is Nuage by Django Reinhardt. Nuage is one of the best known recordings by jazz artist Django Reinhardt. It was originally released by Reinhardt and the Quintet Hot Club of France on the French swing label as a 78 RPM single. Like all jazz, it was promptly banned by the Nazis, who considered jazz like modern painting a degenerate, that is, Jewish, art form. In addition, Reinhardt was a gypsy, one of the groups targeted for extinction by the Nazi regime. refers to the origins of an object or work of art. Historically, it's been used to describe the process of validating authorship. Is this really a Picasso or a forgery? But since 1933, it has also referred to establishing rightful ownership of a work. From 1933 until the end of World War II, a number of Nazi units known as the Kunstschutz plundered gold, silver, and important artworks from all over Europe. Although many of these items were recovered by the agents of the Monuments Fine Arts and Archives program, also known as the Monument Men, many are still missing. The Eskenazi Museum of Art on IU campus is one of the institutions involved in provenance initiatives designed to restore works of art to the institutions that originally owned them. And when the museum reopens in, tw- in uh, 2019, it plans to highlight provenance as part of several galleries and exhibits. Today I'm pleased to interview Jennifer McComas, curator of American and European art at the Eskenazi Museum, who specializes in issues of provenance. Welcome to Interchange, Jenny. Thank you. Yes, I'm glad to have you here. So um, I just wanted to start with the basics. What is provenance above what I just said, and how does it work within the World War II context? Well, first of all, Joan, I just want to thank you for uh, taking on this topic. It's very complex, but very important historically, and I think in our contemporary world as well. So as you mentioned previously, the word provenance is our, our fancy word in the museum world for referring to the history of ownership of a work of art. Um, typically, you know, provenance uh, has been used to authenticate a work of art or to establish its value. Uh, for example, you can if you can trace a work back to an, a prestigious collection, a royal collection, for example, that will enhance the work's value if it goes up for auction, for example. Um, in terms of Nazi-era provenance issues, uh, this is something I've been working on for quite a few years at the Eskenazi Museum of Art. And the reason that we are focusing particularly on the ownership and whereabouts of works of art between 1933 and 1945 is, well, quite simply because the Nazis um, organized the most massive and calculating campaign of art looting ever. Um, There have you know, looting of artworks and cultural objects has always been a part of war ever since the beginning of 
history, of recorded history. But the Nazis really took this to a new level, and that had ideological implications as well. The looting of art, particularly from Jewish collections, really uh, it tied in with the Nazis' um, anti-Semitic ideology and um, was linked ultimately to the Holocaust. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how the Nazis carried out uh, this art looting campaign, what kinds of artworks were of particular interest to them, and how it tied in with you know, anti-Semitic and racist ideologies. Now, um, it's imp- I guess you know, the, uh, everyone knows, I suppose, that Hitler was you know, supposedly a failed artist. Oh, he, yes. was, uh, <laughs> he was uh, only. <laughs> rejected from, from art school. Um, you know, I think I've seen a few works that he painted. They are competent, but he certainly was never going to be a great artist. Um, nevertheless, he maintained an almost obsessive interest in art throughout mm-hmm. his life. Um, he was a collector. So during the Nazi regime, uh, he was actively collecting art at the same time that he was planning, let's say, the you know the military uh, occupation of Paris. He was, oh, you know, he was planning. He was planning how how he would add to his collection. And several of the other um, high ranking officials of the Nazi regime, such as um, the Reichsmarshal Hermann Göring, uh, also uh, very much interested in collecting art. This was a way for these Nazi officials to to maintain their prestige, to show that they were cultured. Were they only collecting these uh, kind of great, massive Teutonic statues and things that you see associated with the Nazi regime, or were they, did they have like secret little modernist troves? That's a great question. The answer to that is yes, um, but they had to be very discreet about their secret modernist troves, and I'll get into the... Um, the attitudes towards modernism mm-hmm. in the Nazi era in a second, but I'll just briefly mention that the the main uh, types of artwork that the Nazis were particularly interested in were the the old masters um, of European art, Renaissance art, um, particularly by uh, German artists. Uh, the Dutch 17th century artists were highly sought after by the Nazis to such an extent that a number of paintings by Johannes Vermeer were forged mm. and, um, and, and fooled some of the Nazis who, who were so eager to collect these works. Um, so uh, Dutch painting was considered very, it was considered uh, quote-unquote Aryan. Mm. Um, you know, the, the Germans were planning to annex the Netherlands to Germany as, a, you know, a, as, as another... Aryan nation, um, so to speak. Um, 19th century German art was also um, highly sought after and was a particularly favorite of Hitler's. Now, there were several um, several members of the Nazi party, including the propaganda minister, Josef Goebbels, who were fond of modern art, uh, but they had to be very careful and discreet when collecting this. Um, so modern art is, was... I think it's fairly well known that modern art was was hated by Hitler. He he made no bones about that. He uh, in his speeches he referred to modern artists um, as 
quote unquote insane and diseased. He used highly medicalized language mm-hmm. to discuss modern art and modern artists. He he would say they have uh, you know, vision problems, and he actually you know went so far as to call for the sterilization of modern artists. Oh my god! Um, so I remember the that famous mm-hmm. or infamous degenerate art show where he was actually hanging things upside down and, and right. So doing this all um, kinds of strange things with exactly. Them. So this campaign against um, against modern art it started in. In 1933, in, in April, actually, just just months mm-hmm. after Hitler came to power, and um, in that month, he started to fire modern artists who were teaching at art academies in Germany, also museum curators and directors who mm-hmm. had championed modern art, who had added modern art to the collections of German museums, lost their jobs and were replaced by Nazi party functionaries. Um, Things really came to a head in 1937 with um, what's known as the degenerate art campaign. So degenerate um, is a biological term. It really, it had been around in German discourse um, for a number of decades already at this point, and it had a very uh, racist and anti-Semitic kind of component. Um, So in the degenerate art campaign, what happened is that the German public museums, now these are state-funded state-run museums, much as Germany still has today. Uh, These museums which had already lost their legitimate directors, were forced to hand over modern art in, the, in their collections. The, um, about 21,000 works of art were confiscated and essentially deaccessioned from the museums, mm-hmm. the public museums. What is, uh, could you explain what deaccessioned means? It means that the works are legally removed from the ownership of the museum. And at that point, they can be disposed of in, in a variety of ways. Uh, museums today um, will sometimes strategically deaccession works and maybe sell them in order to um, acquire new works that better reflect their current collecting priorities. And that's a legitimate practice. Um, this is a little bit different, what happened in 1937 in Germany. Um, so we have about 21,000 works that are uh, removed from the museum collections, and about 600 of them were put on display in this very hastily organized exhibition known as the Degenerate Art Exhibition. That opened in Munich on July 19th of 1937, and it is supposedly the best attended art exhibition of the 20th century with several million visitors, many of whom came because they thought it would be their last chance to ever see these modern works of art that they loved. Um, The works were displayed, as you mentioned, sometimes they were uh, hung on the wall crookedly. Uh, They were really packed very closely together. It was not, the show was, the intent was not to show these works to their best advantage, but to convince the public that that this was terrible art, that the German people had been lied to and duped by the museum directors um, who had been appointed during the Weimar era. Um, There was also quite a, um, there were wall texts that claimed that there was a, a Jewish cabal that was foisting these works onto the onto the innocent German people. So it was very much a propaganda exhibition. Um, There were racist comments that were uh, affixed on the walls near the works of art as well. 
Um, so this is Joan Hawkins on Interchange. My guest is Jenny McComas, curator of American and European art at the Eskenazi Museum, who specializes in issues of provenance. And we've been talking about... Um, Hitler's attitude toward modern art and the infamous degenerate art show. So um, w after that, then, um, so I need to figure out a way to get us back into this question of looting. So after they deaccessioned the the artwork, uh, was it put into storage? Did they just take it? What did they do with it? So these, um, and I want to point out that these works are not technically considered to be looted because mm. they belonged to state-run museums. Um, so it's a little bit, well, it's really quite different than works that were looted from a private collection, which I think we'll get back into in a minute. But these degenerate, so-called degenerate works were, um, many of them were taken to a warehouse in Berlin um, for storage. And at that point, um, Many works were sold abroad for foreign currency, and the idea was to raise funds for the war effort, and as well as to, quote-unquote, cleanse Germany of this degenerate art. Um, in terms of um, looting from private collections, now this was happening simultaneously, and there were a number of mechanisms that the Nazi authorities used in order to um, expropriate art from private collections, primarily from Jewish collections, although that's not the case always. Um, so I'm just going to list a couple of these. Now, sales of work under duress um, or sales made below the market value of those works was um, one way in which Jews who were trying to flee from Nazi Germany um, this is something they were subjected to. There was something called the Reich flight tax that emigrating Jews had to pay if they left Germany in the 1930s. Now, this is an example of there was an existing law on the books in Germany that required wealthy Germans who were leaving, emigrating from Germany to, you know, pay a bit of a fine, let's say, if they wanted to leave. And that, that idea was to discourage wealth from leaving Germany to help mm. you know, because of economic problems. So the Nazis took this law and manipulated it and turned it into uh, part of their anti-Semitic program. So emigrating Jews are required to relinquish um, generally 96 to 99 percent of their assets um, in order to leave. 96 to 99 percent. Exactly. So people really could leave with maybe a few hundred dollars if they were lucky. So people were selling art um, or leaving art behind in order to leave because if it's a choice between your art and your life, there's yeah, not much of, of a, a choice in that situation. So um, it, that was one means by which the Nazis came into, um, into art. Now... Um, Registration of Jewish assets was another way that the Nazis learned what kind of art people had. Um, people were legally required to register. And, and this is not just art, but their furniture and, and other, other properties as well. So those could later be uh, easily expropriated. Um, and of course, once Jews started to be deported in Germany and other occupied countries, often the authorities would just go into their homes and, and remove property that was left there. Um, I want to talk a little bit, though, about one particular Nazi agency that was very mm -hmm. 
highly involved in art looting, particularly in Western Europe, but although they they did kind of spread out across the entire continent. And this is a, um, an organization called the Einsatzstab Reichsleiter Rosenberg, um, known as the ERR for short. It was led by a Nazi ideologue named Alfred Rosenberg, who was um, very influential as a propagandist in Nazi Germany. He was um, very active in disseminating some pretty crazy ideas about it, you know, Jewish Bolshevik world conspiracies, um, <laughs> this sort of thing. But he uh, organized this agency called the ERR to systematically carry out confiscations of Jewish property, particularly in Paris, where there were many art dealers who had valuable um, holdings of gallery stock, many Jewish art dealers. Also in the Netherlands, which became uh, a major center of the art trade during World War II. So this ERR organization was confiscating art and funneling it into um, to say auction houses that were collaborating with the Nazis. Ah, interesting. Interesting. Um, and so were there other forms of looting? When, when we're talking about provenance and we're talking about tr um, tracing back, are there other forms of looting besides to individuals? Well, um, institutions during the war were quite concerned um, that they would be targeted as well as the art museums. Mm -hmm. So... Um, Museums such as the Louvre in Paris, for example, removed a lot of their um, most valuable works out of the museum. The Mona Lisa, for example, was sent to an undisclosed location in a rural area because there was serious concern that these works would be uh, looted as well. And they had right, a good reason to be concerned because Hitler was planning to create Europe's largest art museum in his hometown of Linz, Austria. Oh. <laughs> um, it was going to be called the Führer Museum. The Führer Museum. Yes. Right. Yeah. Well, in that he, booming metropolis. Of certainly, as a megalomaniac, <laughs> <laughs> and his goal was to uh, house all of what he considered to be Europe's greatest artwork in in his museum. So, um, and and there. Among the works of looted art that were recovered after the war were major masterworks that did not come from Jewish collections, but from churches. For example, um, the Ghent altarpiece from Belgium is a well-known example of a, a piece that the Nazis looted from a church. Um, and in the Eastern European countries that were occupied, I would say the looting was also more indiscriminate, mm. um, you know, particularly in, in Poland, for example, um, institutions there um, as, and aristocratic Polish collections were, were looted. And um, I should point out, too, that not all of the looting that occurred during the war was carried out by the Nazis. Um, so we're also dealing with the fact today that the Soviet uh, troops, for example, um, looted quite a bit um, at the end of the war, as did other allies. Oh, that's interesting, too. So um, it's time for a break. We'll listen to Heebie-Jeebies by Louis Armstrong and his Hot Five from 1926. This song features an Armstrong signature scat singing. The Nazis included scat singing as unique to quote-unquote Negroid music and deemed it quote-unquote degenerate. The prohibition on this type of music declared by the Nazi Department of Popular Education and Art states, 
quote, it is forbidden to play in public music which possesses to a marked degree characteristic features of the method of improvisation, execution, composition, and arrangement adopted by Negroes and colored people, unquote. Stay with us for more on Nazi art looting with Jenny McComas when Interchange returns. Support for WFHB comes from the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. And support for WFHB comes from the Limestone Post, an online culture and lifestyle magazine for Bloomington and beyond. You can explore articles, photo essays, and videos on the arts, outdoor, local history, community events, and all the topics that make Bloomington such a great place to live. Limestone Post, writers with a voice, photographers with a vision, online at limestonepost.com. to Interchange. I'm Joan Hawkins. Today's show is confronting Nazi art looting in the 21st century, and our guest is Jenny McComas, curator of European and American art at IU's Eskenazi Museum of Art. In our first segment, we discuss the basics about provenance and the way it works within the World War II context. From 1933 until the end of the war, many art collections of Western Europe were pillaged, and we've been trying to restore artworks to their rightful homes ever since. And uh, Jenny he was talking about the fact that this it wasn't just theft for um, you know for personal gain it also had a strong ideological component uh, there's been a renewed effort to conduct Nazi era provenance research during the past two decades Jenny and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that happened I think this year is the 20th anniversary of the Washington Conference on Holocaust era assets for example why has it taken so long yeah, well, it is indeed an important anniversary that we're marking this year. Um, uh, so in, in 1998, November of that year, this conference you mentioned, the Washington Conference on Holocaust-Era Assets, took place in Washington, D.C. And that conference was attended by representatives from 44 nations who all <clears throat> acknowledged the importance of taking a retrospective look back at the era of Nazi art looting and confronting the fact that there was still quite a bit of, um, or presumably quite a bit of unrestituted art um, out there. I'm going to go back briefly sure. to the immediate 
uh, the immediate post-war era. And just, you know, I think people are often confused. Mm-hmm. Why are we at this era? It's now, you know, 70 years after World War II. Why are we, why are we still dealing with this problem? Why wasn't it taken care of much sooner after the war? And it's a very complicated uh the answer to that question is very complicated. It has a lot to do with the geopolitical situation of Europe after World War II. But for about five years after the war, there was a very concerted effort by the group you mentioned earlier, the Monuments Men, as they're known colloquially. Um, the official name of this group is the Monuments Fine Arts and Archives Division of the United States Army. They spent uh, quite a bit of time recovering looted art and inventorying it and attempting to return it um, you know, back to the, the places and people from whom this work had been stolen. Now, this Monuments, Fine Arts, and Archives Division was created um, in 1943. and So before the war actually ended. Exactly. And the original purpose of this group was not to find looted art. I'm not sure that um, there was quite the awareness at, at that point of the scale of the and scope of the looting, mm-hmm. but the point was to help to ensure that cultural monuments in Europe were not needlessly destroyed during um, bombing campaigns, in oh, particular. So the, the the monuments men were mostly museum curators, directors, conservators who advised the uh, the army on which churches or archaeological mm. sites, for example, mm. were of historical and artistic value. And uh, I would say quite a few of these sites were actually preserved through their efforts. Now, at the very end of the war, their efforts did shift to looted art. And uh, you know, there was a Hollywood film that came out a few years ago that dramatized mm. the uh, you know, how they found um, massive quantities of Nazi looted art hidden away in salt mines, for example. Um, the most famous of those mines is located in Sal- in Austria, just outside of Salzburg. Um, and this mine held many of the works that were destined for Hitler's Führer Museum. So what happened is the Monuments Men, um, they collected this, these works. They sent them off to four different um, centers they established in, Ger- in occupied Germany um, called, the, called Collecting Points. And the most important to these collecting points was in Munich. And at the collecting points, the works were inventoried. They tried to identify what were these works, who were they stolen from, where do they need to go. And a decision was made to to restore works to the nations from which they had been Ah. uh, stolen rather than to individuals. In a few cases with very well-known collectors, such as the Rothschilds, works were... um, directly restituted to those families. But in most cases, works were sent back to the country of origin, mm-hmm. and from there it became that country's responsibility. In the case of um, objects, particularly Judaica, that or Jewish ceremonial objects that were uh, stolen, often these were airless because of the Holocaust. So these were often sent to um, something called successor organizations. The best mm. known was the Jewish Restitution Successor Organization, which tried to research these works and distribute them, if not back to owners, at least to museums that could 
research and care for them. Well, and then if it was being, if they were being sent to the nation states, then that created a problem too, because several governments had an official, their official line was that um, no looting had occurred in their country, and that in fact, then that they had not participated in the deportation of Jews. That was certainly a problem. Also, just general bureaucratic red tape um, was an issue. Uh, oftentimes, claimants or potential claimants were really deterred in their efforts to retrieve property because there were unreasonable deadlines that they had to meet or documentation they had to provide that was simply not possible um, at the time. And many many Holocaust survivors or their heirs were also just not not psychologically uh, able to deal with with the situation in the 1940s or 50s. I can imagine. And then there's also this uh, cache of them. I mean, we we still don't know because of um, Switzerland's privacy laws surrounding banking, but I know that some things have been kind of just stored in Swiss bank vaults for quite a long time. Yeah, so that's a great segue into the 1998 Washington Conference, in fact, because what happened um, is that in large part because the um, our efforts in fighting the Cold War really quickly displaced efforts in what was known as a denazification effort in Germany. Um, dealing with the aftermath of the war and, and art restitution, that really wrapped up by 1950 as priorities turned elsewhere. Now, and denazification was just making sure that no Nazi officials were still in high-ranking positions in the government. That was yes. part of it. It was also considered a re-education campaign to, um, I guess, reorient the German people away from Nazi ideology, um, which had been so prevalent for 12 years. So, uh, you know, kind of... Uh, shift in societal right. thinking. That's sort of interesting because um, because part of that reorientation took place while they were while their attention was turned away from restoring art to its original owners or its rightful owners. Much of the Nazification process uh, took place via art initiatives. So. Um, the United States government had a policy, for example, of if we were going to give money through the Marshall Plan to help rebuild countries or to help rebuild Germany especially, they had to accept a certain number of American movies, for example. And the idea was that we would, we would show them how wonderful our way of life was. Yes, Americans had, we had our own propaganda. I and, know, our singing yeah. and dancing. <laughs> well, we, we sent artwork to, to Germany yeah. as well after the war, you know, that was... Um, just as ideologically motivated, although I, I, I think in a much more positive fashion. Yeah. Um, now, in the mid-1990s, this issue of, um, of Holocaust, um, Holocaust victims' um, bank accounts that were lying dormant really came up to the fore, and a number of other issues, such as the downfall of the Soviet Union and its satellite governments uh, led to the opening up of archives. Also around this time, a lot of American military uh, documents from the World War II era were declassified. So researchers suddenly had a lot more information at their fingertips regarding practices such as art looting. And right around 1995, 96, 97, uh, some really groundbreaking books were published on this topic as well. Um, one is The Rape of Europa by Lynn Nicholas, and that's oh, been made okay. into a documentary um, that deals with the whole situation of Nazi art looting and the Monuments Men. Uh, 
Another work by uh, Hector Feliciano is called The Lost Museum, and that focuses mm. on the looting of Jewish collections in France. Mm. Um, both of them are excellent reads. I recommend them. So these sort of confluence of factors uh, led ultimately to the convening of the Washington Conference on Holocaust-era assets in 1998. And coming out of that conference was something called the Washington Principles on Nazi-Confiscated Art, which have served as a guideline for museums now to conduct research. And did museums have to like sign on to that in the way that we sign on to treaties, government sign on to treaties? Um, they're non-binding principles. However, mm -hmm. museums um, really feel an ethical uh, need to comply with these principles. Uh, I don't know of any museum who you know, has flat out rejected this okay. mandate, so to speak. Okay. Uh, this is uh, Joan Hawkins on Interchange. My guest is Jenny McComas, and we're talking about provenance and the Nazi looting of art. Now, um, so we were talking about this conference and that we're, we're this year celebrating the 20th anniversary of the conference. And, and as part and parcel of the conference, a series of principles were enacted that museums more or less agreed to. Uh, regarding the rightful restoration, the restoration of artwork to its rightful owners. Uh, the Eskenazi, um, the IU Museum, has made provenance a major focus. And... Um, can you discuss how and why we decided to make that a focus? Because it's a bit unusual for a university to, to do it so much, yes? It is, it is. Um, so the first museum that really undertook the challenge of conducting provenance research uh, on a large scale at this time was the National Gallery of Art in Washington, mm -hmm. D.C., and they, they have more resources. And one of their curators uh, actually co-authored um, an instruction manual for how to conduct provenance research, which has proved very useful in the field. Because I will say that this this shift into conducting provenance research um, and publicizing provenance was really it, it required a major shift in thinking for museums around the turn of the millennium. Previously, issues of provenance were often considered confidential or just not important to share with the public. But the Washington Principles really um, advise museums not only to identify and research works of art that could have been in Nazi-occupied Europe, but to publicize this information mm. so that potential heirs can locate works of art and so that restitutions can be made if, right. if necessary. So, so museums had to kind of change their thinking on this matter. But there's also the challenge posed by the fact that provenance research is a very specialized skill, and none of us learn it in graduate school. Right. We learn it completely on the job. So this... Um, interesting in and of itself. It I is. Think. It is. But it's a very object-focused kind of research, um, a little hard to address in a classroom setting. Mm -hmm. So... So the the guide I mentioned was published in 2001, and it gives ba basic methodology for how to conduct provenance research and what sorts of, of resources one should be consulting. Um, so I was hired at the Eskenazi Museum of Art as a curator in 2004. And at, at this point, I actually knew next to nothing about Nazi art looting. Oh, that's um, interesting. You know, it, was, it was interesting. It wasn't too many years after the Washington conference. Um, as I said, this isn't something that's really dealt with in graduate school. 
And it hadn't really entered into our popular culture in mm -hmm. the same way that it has in more recent years with films such as A Monuments Man. There was also the recent film called The Woman in Gold, which right. dealt with the theft of um, modern paintings from a Viennese family. So I had to learn a lot. Um, I, the museum had made a few steps towards um, complying with the Washington principles before before I was hired. So, for example, they had started to draw up a list of works that we mm. should focus on for research. Um, and as I, so as I looked at the history and I, I did some research, you know, I was just, I was appalled at how, uh, at how, at this looting campaign, what I was learning and the, the connections between art looting and genocide um, you know, during World War II. And I, I, I guess I took a really personal uh, interest in the topic. Mm. I already had a, a strong interest in Holocaust-related issues. It's something I do in my broader art historical research. Mm. So, so I felt very strongly that this was something the museum should should prioritize in a really serious way. Yeah. There's a, a when I was reading things to prepare for our interview today. I mean, one of the quotes that really stuck with me is. Oh, a woman who had written that uh, people often sort of dismiss this or people can dismiss this as well, just as its artwork is not nearly as important to talk about this as it is some of the other um, the other crimes of the Nazi era. And, but what she said was that every looted painting represents a life lost. And I, I think it's very, very powerful. Yeah, I, I truly believe that. And, and I think that we can learn a lot about Holocaust victims and survivors through mm -hmm. the stories of these artworks. I also think it's important for people to recognize that while, no, we can't draw an equivalency between the loss of an artwork and the loss of a human life, they were interconnected. And, right. and destruction of, of cultural heritage, for example, is, is part of the definition of genocide. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so could you, um, so you said that when you got involved with the museum, you didn't really know very much about um, provenance at that time. So how, how was it that you began to, to learn about it? Mm -hmm. So reading, uh, reading the guide that was published in 2001, um, which is called the Alliance of American Museums Guide to Provenance Research, that was extremely helpful. Um, I've also been able to attend several uh, training workshops over the years, uh, particularly at the National Archives in Washington, D.C. And a lot of online resources have, have started to come become available over the last decade and a half as well that have helped not only with figuring out the research methodology, but also these are like digitized resources right. that, are, that are going online and really facilitating the research process. But a lot of it was devising my own research methodology and figuring out, out what would work. And I worked with some other museum staff to get that going. Oh, very interesting. Okay, so we'll come back to that. It's um, time for another break. We'll listen to a cabaret song by Claire Waldorf from 1926. This is Raus mit den Menem 
aus dem Reichstag, which might be translated, chuck the men out of the government. A cabaret is often a form of political satire, a critique on the ways of the world. It was banned in Germany in 1933 when Hitler came to power. The singer, Claire Waldorf, was openly gay, another group that was targeted by the Nazis. And in 1939, she left Berlin. More on confronting Nazi art looting in the 21st century with Jenny McComas when Interchange returns on WFHB. And support for WFHB comes from the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. Welcome back. This is Interchange. I'm Joan Hawkins. Today we're speaking with Jenny McComas, curator of European and American art at Indiana University's Eskenazi Museum of Art about Nazi art looting. In our previous segments, we've talked about provenance in World War II and the work that IU is doing to help with provenance initiatives, as well as the way that Jenny herself became interested in uh, tracing provenance and helping to... um, helping to restore works of art to their rightful owners. And for our final segment, I wanted to turn to some specific cases. So I think we have some pictures actually up on the website that people can take a look at. So the museum has identified about 800 works of art that uh, should be receive some level of research. 800 from our collection? From our collection. Oh, wow. The museum has... Um, Altogether, we have about 45,000 works of art right. at the museum's collection. For Nazi or provenance research, you know, we focus on works pr- that could have been in Nazi-occupied Europe, uh, so between the years of 1933 and 1945. So that narrows it down somewhat. We also try to focus on the types of artwork that were um, most highly desired by the Nazi collectors. Mm. So... Um, as well as realistically, what works are going to pose the fewest research challenges, um, and I'll talk about that a bit. But so primarily, we've re- we are researching European paintings, sculptures, and drawings that were 
made before 1946. So anything that more contemporary is not part of this project. Non-Western art is not currently part of this project, although you know these mm-hmm. antiquities are not part of the project. Although at some point in the future, they certainly could fall under the, the framework of Nazi art provenance research because certainly objects of those types were in Europe. Um, the paintings, uh, for a variety of reasons, are the easiest uh, type of object mm-hmm. to research. I'll say that with a caveat because there are still many challenges. So um, what we do is I, lo- I look at the um, research that's already been done, and sometimes a little bit of research may have been conducted on a work, sometimes not. It's a matter of really examining the object very closely. Uh, in the case of a painting, if we're lucky, we'll have a lot of labels or inscriptions on the back of the painting, on the stretcher bars, on the frame. And those kinds of markings can yield many clues about previous ownership. Often I found that that information was not recorded, is not in our Mm -hmm. files, not in our database. So there's at a very basic level, we're recording this information, re-measuring works, checking signatures, and then looking through museum files and trying to match Mm -hmm. up information. And from there, the research um, process really expands into looking at some of the online resources that I mentioned. Uh, For example, uh, one source... One, one website online has digitized the records of the ERR, the agency that looted art in Western Europe, and we can find their inventory cards because the Nazis kept great records, <laughs> which helps us now. <laughs> That's the one good thing about that. Well, I don't know if it's good, but... <laughs> to a fault. Right. So I thought I would talk... Uh, and then I've also been to many archives because mm-hmm. certainly not everything is online. Um So we've had mixed success Mm -hmm. in establishing the actual Nazi-era provenances of works of art. In some cases, we already knew what that provenance was. We knew where a work was and who owned it during the Nazi era. But in other cases, that was a gap in our knowledge of the work's history. It is quite normal to have gaps in an object's provenance, particularly the earlier a work was made, the longer mm-hmm. history it has, and so therefore the chances that that history will not be fully documented are quite strong. So we don't look at a gap in provenance as necessarily a problem, but if it's a gap during the Nazi era, that certainly means that's a work we should look at more closely. So I'm going to talk about just um, two or three paintings that um, I researched that have particularly interesting Nazi-era histories. And one of these is a Dutch portrait. It's, it was painted in 1673 by an artist named Philips de Koenig. It's a portrait of a young man. We don't know who he is. Um, in fact, I don't really know much about the early history of this painting at all. It was donated to the museum in um, 2001, I believe, and we really had very little provenance beyond the the name of the gallery that the donor had purchased it from. This was an example where looking at the back of the painting um, yielded an amazing amount of World War II-related history for this painting. So... There's a label on the back of the painting with an inventory number from the Wallraf Richart Museum in Cologne, Germany. 
And I thought, well, that's that's odd. I wonder if this museum, they must have owned it at some point. Maybe they deaccessioned it. And, and at this point, I was thinking it was just a, a normal deaccession. Maybe they thought this painting no longer um, was necessary in their collection. So maybe they decided to move it on. So I contacted them and uh, quickly received an answer that they had purchased this painting in uh, The Hague in 1943 when Germany was occupying the Netherlands. And um, they purchased it there at an auction house. And then following the war, they had to, um, it was taken out of the Wallraff-Rickart's collection because any, the Allies determined that any works of art that German museums purchased in occupied countries during the war were subject to restitution, regardless of, of who that work had been acquired from. This was um, something put into effect in 1943 uh, called the London Declaration that rendered German museum acquisitions during the war invalid. So in, 19, um, in 1950, this painting was um, removed from the Walraff Richards Museum collection. It was taken to one of the collecting points that I mentioned and given an inventory number. And it's amazing that um, some of the Dutch archives have all of this documentation. It's, it's fascinating. And the painting was then returned to the Netherlands in 1950. So at this point, my question was, well, who did this painting come from? It went through an auction house that collaborated with the Nazis. And that's clearly worrying. It doesn't mean that everything that went through a collaborationist auction house was looted from a Jewish collection, but it certainly is a possibility. So I worked very extensively with an archivist in the Netherlands who um, unfortunately wasn't able to really track much information down. We were unable to determine who may have owned the painting prior to the sale at auction in 1943. We did determine that, we did find a documentation from 1952 from the Dutch government that indicated that the work had not been unlawfully confiscated from anybody. And at that point, the Netherlands sold the painting off through another auction. My question is, how do they know that for sure? Mm -hmm. It's hard to know. This is unfortunately a situation where we have a very well-documented history during the war, but then the trail goes cold um, within just a couple of years. Nevertheless, it's been up on our website for years, so people mm -hmm. are certainly free to contact us if they have any questions. Oh, that's fantastic. But it also illustrates just how very difficult this is. It is. And and also how international collaboration is very much necessary to successfully conduct this research. It can be very time consuming, expensive, um, knowledge of a lot of languages might be required. So I've been fortunate to really develop a network, um, both in the US and abroad, that's been, you know, just super helpful and <laughs> Yeah. and tracking down information. That's wonderful. This is Joan Hawkins on Interchange. My guest is Jenny McComas. We're talking about provenance and Nazi art looting. So we've so far been talking about the, you know, the trajectory of these artworks and um, trying to restore them to rightful owners. And then in the case of this one painting you were talking about, sort of how your suspicions were aroused and, and the steps you took to try to figure out 
like whether or not this indeed was a looted work of art. So I know that when the museum reopens in 2019, we're going to be incorporating discussions of provenance or notions of provenance into the galleries themselves. And I'm and I'm wondering about what that's going to look like, because I always think of it in terms of just like tracing back um, the genealogy, if you will, of a work. So how will how will you be incorporating it into the galleries? Yeah, well, I have a number of ideas, and I, I feel fortunate to be both a collections curator and a provenance researcher, because I have perhaps a bit more flexibility to incorporate provenance into the galleries. Um, some museums have um, staff who are devoted specifically to provenance research, um, but I, I, I do both, um, the provenance research and, and other curatorial um, jobs. So I'm planning the reinstallation of the European and American galleries uh, at the moment, and I, I think it's very important for a number of reasons to try to make these provenance stories more visible in our galleries. Um, it can be tricky to do that visually. Um, so I'll be turning to textual resources, probably for the most part, through labels um, and maybe special wall texts. I think we're also going to hopefully um, be developing some kinds of audio uh, or phone oh. tours. Oh. And then I am also hoping to implement a series of small-scale focus installations in our permanent collection galleries where we can really unpack the history of an individual work of art and really um, tell visitors about the history, the backstory of that work. So this would be a great chance to include maybe portraits of former owners, maps that track the paintings, journeys mm. across time and space, maybe um, images of some of the inscriptions or labels on the back of the painting. Um, just try to give a more visual sense. Maybe uh, Technical materials from our conservation lab might also be included in that sort of a a context. Um, but I think uh, the reason for doing this, however, are I have three main yeah, um, sure. three main reasons that I think provenance uh, stories are just as important to tell in the gallery as the biographical information about the artist or a description of a style. And you know the first is is obviously transparency and complying with the Washington principles. We want people to know the history of the works of art. We want to be upfront that maybe we don't know everything, but here's what we know and um, we're conducting research and this is how we're conducting that research. Secondly, um, is really an art historical reason. Um, it's a great means of interpretation. I think that people can learn a lot about the economic and political and social roles that works of art played throughout history if we kind of delve into the provenance and we learn something about the former owners and why did they value this particular work? Mm -hmm. Why did they want to own it? So it really expands the art historical context. And thirdly, and, and this is something that's so relevant to our contemporary world, unfortunately, is highlighting Nazi or provenance in particular, and would, will enable us to use um, to use this provenance as a means of Holocaust education. So, I mean, Joan, you've mentioned to me that some of your students have a fairly limited knowledge 
yeah. of the Holocaust. I teach a, a class on uh, film fascism and psychoanalysis, and um, and I've been surprised every time I've taught that class. When I I start the class showing Night and Fog, the uh, documentary film about the camps. And after showing that film, I typically ask the students how many of them have studied the Holocaust before, how many of them have any knowledge of the Shoah. And really, only about half of the students in every class raises his or her hand, which is shocking to me. And um, the course is, is joint listed with Jewish studies, and of course, the Jewish students have a very good grasp of that history, but a lot of the Gentile students don't. And there was that very appalling article that was in the New York Times just this past week, I think, that uh, a disturbing percentage of people who were asked about Auschwitz didn't know what that term referred to, didn't know what it meant. Right. I think that was, uh, I think the respondents to the survey, about 40% of them had either didn't know what Auschwitz was or had a very limited understanding of, of the Holocaust. And um, I, you know, I think coupled with that, we have the um, report from the Anti-Defamation League right. that there's been a 57% increase in anti-Semitic incidents in the U.S. in 2017. And I looked at that report, and what really stood out to me was that, um, according to their website, this, this rise was due... It was significant, and it's due in part to a significant increase in incidents in schools and on college campuses. Oh so I think you know we're located on a university yeah. campus, so I, I feel that just gives us an extra, an extra reason to try to tell tell this story through our paintings and and to give people a personal connection to the Holocaust that they may not have in other ways in their life. And we, we do have a couple of paintings in the collection that um, belonged to both Holocaust victims and survivors, and mm. some of whom, some of the survivors came to Bloomington and later donated works to us. So we can really make that link very oh, personal. Well, this has been wonderful. And... Um, and we are, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. So thank you, Jenny, for coming. I'd like to thank uh, Jenny McComas for joining us today to talk about provenance and Nazi art looting. And we're going to close the show with a piano piece, Opus 33A, a composition by Arnold Schoenberg, another artist deemed degenerate by the Nazis. Schoenberg was one of the modern musicians pioneering the atonal scale. A Jewish composer, he left Germany in the early 1930s for the United States. It was after that legislation that you were talking about earlier that said that Jews could not hold university posts. He was fired from his job. And so he left for the United States where he accepted a position at UCLA. This is Opus 33A. Thanks for listening. Um, this is a live performance by Professor Walter Robert of the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music from September 1970. Thanks for listening. I'm Joan Hawkins.